All right, so here we are with Job Fair Podcast, and today I'm interviewing uh, one of my old or uh, JROTC instructors. His name is Tom Hall, and I'm going to let him give a little bit more of a, a bio about himself. I could try and do that, but I'd probably fudge up some of the details. So I'm going to let him give a brief introduction. Well, good evening. Um, I was privileged to be your JROTC instructor at Georgia Military College. We agree on a lot of things except for during football season because I grew up near the home of the Gators, so there's that. I'm a GMC graduate myself, spent 22 years in the Army and the artillery, and now I'm doing JROTC about 10 miles from where I grew up, so living the dream. All right. Basically, I'll start this out um, with, did you originally go just enlist into the military first thing out of high school, or did you do anything else before then? Well, I, was, I always had sort of an interest in the military, and um, my dad went to GMC, he was like, well, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for my boy. And he was paying the bills. So I'm like, okay. You know, who was I to argue? I'm like, all right, fine. So I went there to junior college. And um, I just, you know, took a liking to it. And, uh, you know, there's the old cliche, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. So when I first went in the Army out of GMC, when Reagan was president, he spent a lot of money in the military. So the, the pay increased and the... I got to shoot a lot and that sort of thing. And as you can know, now blowing up stuff never gets old, right? So, yeah, it was a fun time to be in. So I decided I enjoyed it and stayed in for 22 years. So, in 20 worked or less, okay. that's how I came to where I am now. So, you went in after the uh, ROTC program for the junior college. So, at that time, did you go in with like a higher rank and everything like it is no, now? No, I still went as a, a second lieutenant. I actually went <clears throat> GMC for two years. I did not get commissioned from GMC. Then I went to Georgia College, and I got commissioned out of Georgia okay. College. I went as a second lieutenant, like like you would from any other school. When you were uh, going through that process, did you get to decide on uh, artillery, or did they just kind of put you there? Well, I was one of the few people that actually requested artillery. It was my number one choice. We got to make five choices. It was artillery, military intelligence, which is an oxymoron, and then, you know, two or three others, and... You know, the math probably scared people from artillery because, again, that was, God, I'm showing my age, but you had to figure everything manually <laughs> to make the round go from here to there. So, yeah, you know, the, the math just scared people. And and uh, and reason I, I actually asked for artillery because my favorite instructor at GMC was artillery. So a lot of us, okay. you know, as we come up, you see people that we admire or that we emulate and say, I want to be like this guy. You know, the biggest... Horse's rear end there was an infantryman. I said, I don't want to be like I don't want to be like him. <laughs> so that's really why I chose artillery. But uh, you know, the math wasn't that hard. Like I tell students, you know, I told you guys, I tell my students now. Hell, I did it. So how hard could it be? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's uh, yeah. Nowadays it's a lot different. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. Now they even debate putting putting some of the manual um, stuff on there, like the compass and the azimuth. Sure. So. <laughs> well, my, my understanding is I still think they teach the real basic manual stuff just to kind of give, just mm -hmm. to kind of teach them, hey, here's how the round goes from here to there. But as far as the day-to-day -day workings of computing, it, it's all automated now, of course. You know, so yeah, uh, yeah. Which is pretty sweet, but um, we had to figure out all the safety data manually back in the day. God, I sound old, but that's just how it was, you know. <laughs> So. Well, to aid you a little bit further, uh, I mean, do you want to date like when you actually enlisted? No, I, I, a year? I came in in um, 83, October of 83, and I punched out okay. in 2005. So 
22 years ripping off the taxpayers. And then my my transition basically was 40 feet away when I moved over to the GMC okay. High School. Because you remember the old Patton Hall? Okay. I moved, I moved right over there where Colonel Alton's office was. Oh, mm-hmm. So that's basically, I moved, I moved right, literally across the street when I got out. Okay. So I, I was very fortunate, you know. So your experience going into the uh, into the military, was it what you were expecting or was it different? I mean, your father, you said your dad was in the that's military, correct. he just yes. went to GMC. He was he was in uh, the occupation of Japan right after World War II. Um, okay. As far as my expectations, it's kind of, it's hard to, it's hard to describe, you know. Um, I didn't know what to expect. Nobody really does. I mean, you can, you yeah. can watch Full Metal Jacket and think you know what it's like to go in the Marine Corps, <laughs> but you don't really know. You know, we, yeah. we, we, all say, we all see things in the movies or on TV. We think, oh, if I was this, I would have done that or whatever. But you don't know until you experience it. So, um, but I enjoyed it. It was, uh, again, as far as regarding expectations, nobody really knows what to expect. But um, obviously you do it that long and you, you enjoy it. The good days outweigh the bad days, obviously. Any, any job you have where the good outweighs the bad, you know, it's worth sticking around for, you know? Yeah, I was just figuring since since your father was in the military, you probably have uh, the closest thing to a good insight into what you were getting into. Well, but even then, war changes a lot, sure. and you know. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. He, of course, you know, of course, my dad. And I sound like him now. It's it's, it's it's ironic, but oh, when I was at GMC, you know, they made us lick the toilets, you know, with our tongues clean, and they <laughs> we only slept two hours a day, and all this kind of stuff, and which obviously wasn't true. He was in in. And I told you guys the same thing. Oh, when I was a cadet, we, we didn't go to the crap you guys are doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, so you have stories and you have insights. But, again, until you, you know, put on the uniform and do it, it's, you don't really know. So, again, it's one of those things you don't know what you don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. So, like I was telling you before, uh, before we actually started this podcast, but to kind of tell the listeners, um, like I was saying – I interviewed two other people that they've probably already listened to, and I was really focused on the beginning of their career and their expectations and all that. So now I'm going to start talking about um, kind of how your career transitioned. Like you have the enlistment period, but most people aren't going out doing tours of duty for 20, 30 years. I mean, that would be really rough on the body. So it's kind of like looking at what your options are to stay in the military after you get done with the really active tour duty type stuff. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you yeah. go ahead. My first training was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is where they train the artillery. And, and mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't enlist in the traditional sense. I went in as an officer, so the, the initial training is a little bit different. But, um, okay. again, to get back to the old first impressions cliche, mm-hmm. my, um, my first tour was in Germany. Okay? And, again, I'm dating myself. That was when the Berlin Wall was still up. And, <laughs> and I sort of tell, tell my students, I've probably told you all this entire cliche, too, it was back when life was simpler, you know. The Berlin Wall was still up, and everybody knew who the bad guys were, right? The Soviets didn't like us, mm-hmm. we didn't like them. It was an easier, in, in the geopolitical sense, it was an easier time. But Germany was, was an awful lot of fun. I mean, when you're 20-something years old, you get a chance to live in Europe and visit almost every country in Europe. By the time I came back from Germany in 87, I had been to almost every country, except for the one, Norway, Sweden, up, up north. It was... um. It was, it was pretty wild. It was, it was a lot of fun. So, again, that was my first impression of the military. Plus, we, we defense, defense funding was up quite a bit during the Reagan presidency, and um, we shot a lot. 
Now, when, you know, <laughs> you got all the rounds, you know, again, the old blowing up stuff never gets old, but I'm, I'm telling you, I didn't mind being away from home, being out in the field, as long as you're busy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We had a lot of, a lot of artillery, a lot of ammunition. Um, it was a good time to be in the military, good time. And so I decided, hey, I, I wouldn't mind doing this. Even though I knew as, as a thing kind of ebbs and flows, you know, administrations take over, budgets change, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I knew in the back of my mind it's not going to be like that for my entire career. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. you know, again, first impressions, it was, it was an awful lot of fun. So that's really why I decided to stay in. And I always told myself with any job, civilian or military, um, when you get to the point where you hate going to work in the morning, not just once in a while, but, but consistently, when you get to that point, then maybe it's mm-hmm. time to look for something else to do. And, and some days in the military, they sucked, obviously, but I never, I never had that point where I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, I don't even want to do this anymore. You know, and I missed it when I yeah. got out. So I, get, I got to deal with you knuckleheads, so that was, um, that was okay. <laughs> so I'm going to interject here. I have a couple of questions on what you just said. So one of my questions is, what was the day-to-day uh, uh, life like when you were stationed in Germany? Was it just doing a lot of training mostly, or what? Well, when, I, when we weren't in the field training, you know, we'd get up, we'd go to PT, which I know you remember that. Um, mm-hmm. We trained some where we were stationed at, what they call home station, right? You train at the home station. But when you went to the field, the training areas, I'm not going to bore you the name, Grafenbeer, Hohenfels, various training areas in Germany, we would train with the uh, armor unit, armor's tanks, if you saw Fury, okay? We would train with them, mm-hmm. then we would train with the artillery. So my first job, I was gone a lot training with them. Um, and then we would visit the, uh, the Fulda Gap area, which is where, you know, God forbid, if the Soviets had invaded East Germany or West Germany, the areas we were supposed to defend, we would go over there and kind of look around and say, okay, if we were to had to defend this, here's what would happen, and that, that sort of thing. So the day-to-day stuff, you know, there's, there's training what's called garrison. You're not actually shooting anything. Mm-hmm. Then there's training when you're out in the field. You know, the old cliche, you're out in the field. And then you're shooting artillery or your weapons, machine guns, you know, whatever it is. So um, I'm not able to answer your question or not, but, but um, you see what I'm saying? No, that's pretty good. I was just trying to get a sense of what you what you're – day-to-day life is going to be like if you go out in deployment you're not like firefighting every day necessarily no, no, uh, and of course that's going to be different with you know today's war versus tomorrow's war sure. but in general sure. um so it sounds like you're still doing mostly a lot of training and you know with today's war yeah you might be getting into a firefight every now and again or something absolutely right okay but again that was long before uh 9-11 obviously um the only mm-hmm. the only combat that occurred what I was in was Just Cause, which is Panama, in '88, mm-hmm. I think, '87, '88. Operation Just Cause in Panama, and then Desert Storm, and then after Desert Storm, there was 9/11. You know, so mm-hmm. there there were stretches. You know, I was I was a Cold War veteran, so to speak. You know, and I went to Germany during the Cold War, and then the wall came down in '91, I think. So '90 or '91. You know, I could be wrong with. So one of the other questions I had was, um, so there's there's kind of a difference when you enlist versus when you go in as an officer. Do you still like kind of uh, commit to them for a certain number of years, and then kind of uh, after those years are over, you do your commitment again? That's correct. Yeah, like like um, uh, Milner probably told you. Okay, 
doing as an officer, especially if you're an academy grad or if you're an ROTC scholarship, um, you owe the Army, Navy, whatever, uh, four years active duty, and then four years. Well, it's, it's an eight-year commitment. Usually four years on active duty, meaning full-time, and then four years reserve or National Guard. Or you can do all eight years reserve, guard, eight years. you split it up, right? So, um, okay. Most people that I'm aware of do at least four years on active duty. Then they decide if they're going to stay in full time, or if they're going to transition to the to the guard or reserve. See, so again, okay. if you're one of the academies, if you're an ROTC scholarship, you know the, the taxpayers want their money's worth. Does that make sense? So they're going to. They're going to <laughs> yeah, they've paid for you to get this. So yeah, they definitely want to get get that out of sure, you. Sure, <laughs> sure. And I don't I don't know if you can really speak to it, but can you speak to the differences between like an enlistment training versus officer training? Well, en- enlistment training. Um, is more like for people that that have no idea what the military is like. I mean, officers, as they go in, they had either training at one of the academies or training ROTC in college, so they've had some training. And they have, they have a, um, a, a general idea of what it's going to be like. And it's more of, of a, there's, there's a lot of the technical aspect to it, right? Especially in something like artillery, you don't want the round to land on the PX, you want it to round in the impact area. But then, then there's... um. <clears throat> A lot of leadership training too, because hey, you're, you know you're going to be the one in charge. Enlisted training is for for people that can't spell U.S. Army, so to speak. I, I'm not saying that doesn't mean and people who enlist are stupid. That, what I'm saying is, other than what they talk the recruiter about, they have no idea what military is like, not a clue. Mm-hmm. So it's taking them from that you know, that first day they get to basic, you get the uniform, learn how to salute, all that stuff. So it takes, you know, does that make sense? You go in as an officer, you have at least uh, a general idea of what it's going to be like based on your time at one of the academies or based on what you learned in ROTC in college. But enlisted, because you, know, you have no idea. Plus, enlisted people are not being trained, at least at first, to be leaders. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You're being trained to be a soldier for eight or ten weeks or whatever it is. Um, so... Now, later on, the enlistment side of the house, as they have education, they learn how to be a squad leader, a team sergeant, first sergeant, that sort of thing. But the officer side, you're expected to be a leader when you finish your initial training and get to your first unit at Germany or wherever it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes okay. sense. I have a little bit more of a personal question. When you got finished with your training and everything and you, you got shipped out and you're on your first task as a, a leader... How how was that? Did you feel intimidated by these people who were already like out there for a while and everything? Well, I was. I'm not gonna say scared. Well, I mean, I sort of was. You're not gonna admit it to your peers, obviously. The people that are there, you're like, oh, I know what I'm doing, even though in the back of your mind you don't. Because <laughs> if there's yeah. something like artillery, you're literally shooting a target you can't see. So you have to you have mm-hmm. to think to yourself, okay, all that crap I learned at Fort Sill, I need to apply that now. <laughs> And I and I always remember every artillery guy, especially if you're the officer, because you're responsible. When the round leaves the tube, it's got your initials on it. That basically means, hey, you have done the computations, you figured out the safety, you know it's going to land in the impact area, the land we're supposed to. I remember first mission in Germany, first fire mission. You know the, the battery shot, and it was so foggy the our, the observers could not see the impact area, so the radar had to tell me. The radar tracks around, and they said, you know, round observed safe, meaning, hey, it landed where it's supposed to land. 
I was like, okay, maybe I'm okay. not such an idiot after all. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know, so to get back to your question, it's it's like it's like anything new. Okay, there's always a certain mm. amount of trepidation, a certain amount of, of I guess fear, for lack of a better word. But especially when you're shooting something like that, you know, once that round leaves the tube, it's going to hit something. <laughs> so uh, yeah, <laughs> and it better hit. It you hope it's what you want. So in, in that respect. <laughs> I was nervous, but I, you know, I was always a little bit nervous whenever we shot, and that's not a bad thing. We're, we're mm. dealing with things that can, that can harm people, meaning the wrong people. Like, it, God forbid, you make a mistake and it lands on some friendly troops, or in Fort Sill, once in a while, there's tragic accident where a round lands on soldiers instead of in the practice area, mm. the impact area. So, it's like when I used to take you guys rappelling. Remember that on the tower in the back on campus? I knew what I was doing, but I was always a little bit nervous. Whenever <laughs> someone went over the edge, and when, then once I knew they were good to go, and I'm like, okay, they're on the ground, they're fine. By the way, if you don't mind me jumping in here for a second, um, yeah. when you get a Facebook, you need to tag Brittany McCleskey, okay? She's Brittany somebody now, okay. whatever her name is. I don't know if you remember her or not from <laughs> GMC. I vaguely remember but, uh, her. I remember the name. She's the only person on the rappel tower that I almost, like, didn't kill, but, you know, oops. <laughs> that would have been bad. Well, so, what went wrong with it? No, well, um, this is, and this is a good story for your listeners. Don't ever think you're so good at something that you can't pay attention to what you're doing. Because I've, I've hooked in soldiers and cadets hundreds of times in the rappel tower. And she got up there, and I did this, all the safety checks. Check her gloves, check her helmets, check her harness, all the stuff you're supposed to. But I did, I did not actually hook the rope into the carabiner that she was wearing. Oh. Oops. So she had the, the rope behind her, which is, remember, I don't know if you repelled or not, but you had the rope in the back here, you know, in the small of your back. Okay, now lean over, and when you get almost parallel to the ground, you step onto the tower, and blah, blah, blah. So I got McCleskey there, and she's leaning back. She's almost to the point of no return. And I saw her carabiner just kind of dangling in the breeze, meaning there was no rope in it. So I snatched her up by that thing, hooked her back in. I didn't say a word. I talked her down. Like, good job, McCleskey. Oh, thank you, sir. Whatever. She went off. And I don't know if you remember Master Sergeant Jacobs. He was at the bottom of the tower. I said, Sergeant Jacobs, the tower's closed. He said, what for? So I'll tell you later. <laughs> so, you know, when I make a mistake like that, it scared the crap out of me. She thought it was hilarious. I scared the snot out of myself, but um, don't ever think that you're so good at something that you can't make a mistake. And people do that all the time. You think about it. I don't get too philosophical, but civilian or military, you're, you, you've seen people like that. I mean, think about it. They, they yeah. think they're so good at something, they can just fly by the seat of their pants. And that's... I mean, every day when you every day when you drive, sure. you just get so used to yeah. it, and you just forget and something. That's, yeah, that's when mistakes happen. You think about it, you know. So uh, mm-hmm. every time I think I'm really good at repelling, I always think back on uh, Miss McCleskey. So <laughs> yeah, I'll try to remember that. That's pretty funny. I'm glad you think it's funny. Still scared the snot out of me. <laughs> well, it's funny and now. It's funny now, maybe. <laughs> All right. So once you finished up, how many how many tours did you do? Uh. Well, like I said, it was Germany, then um, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, Fort Knox, Kentucky. No, I never saw the gold. Always get that question. Um, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. 
you know, I took it Fort Gordon, Georgia, just just down the road, basically over to Augusta. Um, <clears throat> Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I was on the good side of the wall. Um, Fort Sill, uh, and then to GMC, my last my last assignment. You know, it's kind of funny. I was very fortunate. My my career began and ended the same place. And and okay. the GMC thing was just stroke of luck. My assignment officer said. Hmm. There's some school in Milledgeville, Georgia that's got an opening. <laughs> I said, I'll take it. So I didn't tell you what it was. So I already know what it is. Don't worry about it. So I was very fortunate. So, I mean, that, those were all my assignments. So how much say do you have in those assignments? Um, uh, when you're first coming in, it's like enlisted. It's like, you know, I'd really rather go to Hawaii. Well, so does everybody else. So have a nice day. You're going to go wherever, okay? It's like anything else. Once you've been in for a while... <clears throat> There are some say you get with your assignment officer, or for your for the enlisted, then you know the assignment non commissioned officer and say, hey, is Fort Hood open or is Fort wherever? Cause a lot of people like to be where they kind of where they grew up, you know. So to mm-hmm. answer your question, when you first get in, not much. But as okay. you as you go back up in seniority, and both the officer and enlisted side, you start getting a little more a little more say to where you go. Is it does it work like you basically? You get put somewhere and you basically stay there until you like you watch openings and you see somewhere you want to go and then you kind of like apply for it or is it just like every four years you're up for reassignment? It's usually or every every two to three years normally. Okay. Up for reassignment. Um, usually three years the longest you're seeing one place. My last tour I was at GMC for six years, which is highly unusual. I was coming up on my third year, within one year of being able to retire, and. Uh, and not because I was anything good. I had a lot of good people working for me. We we exceeded our goal by like a lot. We recruited the largest class in school history. And brigade commander said, hey, if you want to extend, you can go and keep extending. So um, I, the only thing I'll give myself credit for, I was smart enough to know that I had good people working for me and not to micromanage them. So we, we recruited extremely well. So usually three years. So my last tour was, was unusual to be there that long, which I enjoyed it. So it was fine. Okay. And then as you get older, you get more say. Can you request a stay position, or is that uh, they usually don't like yeah, that? Yeah, usually they don't like the cliche is homesteading. They usually don't like you staying okay. in one okay. place very long. Again, my my last tour at GMC was because I was coming up on my last on my twenty years, and they realized that hey, look, you know, if we try to move this guy, he'll just retire, which I would have. But they but they said hey, you know, you're doing a good job. You can stay there for a couple more years, which I did. And, by that time, it was time for me to leave, and it was time to give somebody else a chance, you know. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to ride a good thing very long. It's not fair to someone else that might want that assignment. So usually three years, okay. two to three years. Okay, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I never knew that. I never knew that was the reasoning why we rotate out uh, so many instructors. I always just thought there was a very low retention rate. <laughs> yeah, because they all hate it there. Know. No, it's because, yeah, again, the for the, for the for the high school, they'll stay there as long as GMC will have you. Basically, for the junior college in okay. ROTC, every every two to three years, basically. Uh, I usually ask people, roughly, if they're comfortable, how much they made and stuff like that. Now, with yours, there's obviously going to be a big difference because of inflation, and everything from when you first right. started. But maybe if you could give it like um, a sense of, was it comparable to a teacher or, you know, at the time you said Reagan was in, so you kind of alluded to it being a little bit more lucrative when you first right. went well, out, but 
God knows what it was when I first came in, but I will, tell, I will tell you this. <laughs> I get paid now at a 50% salary, okay, of when I was on active duty. Okay. And my monthly pay, this is before taxes, is per month almost $4,000 a month, almost. So you, you okay. times that times two. So what I'm saying is from the officer side of the house, and even enlisted, it's not that bad. Um we get paid more than teachers, and, and sad to say. Teachers should get paid a lot more than what they do, especially what they're doing now, obviously. Uh, I don't remember what it was when I first came in, to be honest with you. I was, I was never hurting for money. You know, we went out to eat and stuff like that and did some traveling, that sort of thing, you know. And even the enlisted side of the house, even though they don't get paid as much, you know, you're living rent-free, you're eating free, so, you know, if you manage, if you manage your money correctly, <laughs> you know, it's just... Should be fine. Yeah, exactly. So one of the other questions I had about the different assignments, I know you have different options and everything, and the only options uh, that I saw you in was you were an instructor at GMC. Right. But what other type of uh, non-combat roles do they have, like training? Yeah, or, well, or um, after my command time, after I was a battery commander, which is like a company commander, okay, I was at Fort Gordon. I was just an instructor at Fort Gordon. At Fort Gordon, is home with the, uh, they call it Signal Corps, but it teaches communications, radio, satellites, this sort of thing. They needed one artillery guy there. So, you know, I went to GMC an hour and a half down the road. It's fairly close to home. So, you know, I, I, I snatched that up. So I was an instructor at Fort Gordon. I uh, went to Fort Leavenworth. And I, I, the cliche is I flew a desk at Fort Leavenworth. I was um, in the International Officer Student Division. So basically I was... I was a gopher for all the, the, we have officers at Leavenworth from 60 or 70 different countries that go to school there. Yeah, countries that are, that are okay. friendly, at least at the time, <laughs> to uh, the United States. So I was worked in that office and helped manage them and get, the, get them settled and process the paperwork and that sort of thing. And I got to know officers from awful lot of countries. So that was, that was, that was pretty fun. I sponsored a family from Bangladesh and it was a, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. So I, I flew a desk at Fort Leavenworth for a couple of years. Then I went back to, you know, blowing up stuff back to Fort Sill for a while, and then I round up at GMC. So in, in the officer side of the house, there's, there's, there's your, your troop time, right, when you're, you know, doing the combat stuff. Then there's what's called mm -hmm. nominative assignments, basically where you're, again, flying a desk somewhere. So you're ROTC duty, recruiting duty, that sort of thing. Enlisted people do that some, but most of their time is spent with the troops, which most of them prefer that anyway. Mm -hmm. So. Okay, so when you're doing training, it's not usually like uh, actual artillery training. That would be more like the enlisted men doing That's that. That's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Like officers, as you move further up in the ranks, you're you're assigned to artillery or infantry or whatever kind of units, but you're not down there with the soldiers, you know, blowing up stuff. That's as you move up further up, you get a little more detached from that, sad to say, because it's always fun. But the illicit folks are usually more more down in that, on that level. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah that makes sense. They're closer to what the uh, the department title That's is. That's correct, <laughs> yeah. So um, I did have another question. With the training you were talking about in Fort Levington, I think you said. Leavenworth, yeah. Leavenworth. Um, you said you were doing the training with international officers and everything was that just so they could be i guess uh almost 
more consistent with the U.S. and their training? Well, yeah, the, the the international officers, um, they're they're there for one year for what's called the Command and General Staff College. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I I flew a desk for a year, and I became I was a student at the international at the Command and General Staff College, which uh, we have officers from sixty two or three nations. You know, all the NATO countries, you know, all the European countries, you know, France, Spain, Belgium, Holland, whatever. Some of the uh, African nations, um, Sub-Saharan Africa and African nations, India, Bangladesh, you know, whatever. And they're there for a year. So, you know, I, I got to know, know some of them quite a bit. The, the, I sponsor families from Bangladesh, so I, I got to know them and their families. Um, one quick story about that, if you don't mind, which kind of... This kind of gets back to, I'm not going to get political here, but to, to some of the issues we're facing today. We took all the international officers. Every year we take them to Washington, D.C. to show, look, it's the capital. Look how great our capital is, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and then we take them to, uh, to Gettysburg. And we have the, uh, the park historian show them around and, and explain the battle and all this kind of stuff. And we were looking out over the field where Pickett's Charge was. So you've probably slept, slept through history class, but remember Pickett's Charge, that last the last assault on the third day of the battle when Lee's forces got repulsed, okay? And there was a, an officer from one of the sub-Saharan African nations. He was looking out over the field of Pickett's Charge, and there was tears in his eyes. And I said, are you okay, sir? What's wrong? And he goes, um, man, my country can't seem to get it together. Because, you know, some of those uh, some, some of those countries... From one from one year to the next, you don't know who's in charge because they have yeah. a coup or a counter coup and and this sort of thing. And and he was he was got emotional. And he said, uh, "You guys had your own civil war, you had your own issue, but you managed to put it back together again." He said, "I just wish our country could do that." And you know when you think about, you know, we think it's we think you know based on the news now, oh, what's going on in our country? And and yeah, it's it kind of stinks what's going on, but. It's been a lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, if you stop and think about it in history, and that guy, he kind of made me thankful for where we live because we never think of it that way. Mm. You know, they, they, some of those guys come from countries where, um, you know, holy cow, they had a coup in this one country, and I was sort of kidding with the one guy. So, hey, sir, how do they decide who's in charge into the coup? Who's got the most bullets left in their gun? And I, I meant it as a joke. He said, hey, that's not too far from the truth. <laughs> so... You know, it's um, we have we have issues in this country, obviously, but you know mm-hmm. we're still the best game in town. Yeah. And we shouldn't take that for granted. So that's my little, I'm get philosophical on you there. So. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, when you're choosing your assignments, do you also have options to choose assignments that are international as well? Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. You know the I did only only did the one tour overseas because I had an exceptional. In my records, they said I had an exceptional family member, which means I had to stay in the States more often, okay? It was a misdiagnosis. It's a long story. I'm not going to bore you with the story, but the short answer is yes, you can go overseas a lot. Some people stay overseas. They love it overseas. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll come back, for example, they'll go to Germany for a tour, come back to the States for maybe two years, then they'll go to Korea. Then they'll come okay. back to the States, then they'll go back to Germany. You know, so um, it's some people love it. If, to get to your question is you can stay... Usually you can't stay in the states for very long, for like three or four tours in a row, right? Okay. Normally, that's hey man, you need to do your time overseas, whether it's Korea, Germany, 
you know, wherever. So does that make sense? You know, you can usually you can't stay in the states multiple tours. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So that I think that's important because, uh, you know, that that could be difficult if you have a family and everything. Not only are you just moving a lot, but you may also have to move internationally for a tour too. Sure. Yeah. You know. And moving, I guess you could still have your home base, but you know. Sure. Yeah. You know, moving stinks, but at, honestly, after a while, you just I've, I've moved seventeen times, <laughs> and you just get used to it. You you don't like it anymore, but you yeah. get good at it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So even if you got even if you have children, you know, when, when Kevin and Garrett and Blair, um, the thing about moving around a lot was if you hated where you were, that's all right. You're not going to be there very long. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's one way right. to look at it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I do have one other question. It's kind of towards the beginning, really. Yeah, but um, So you, you went to uh, college and you did ROTC. Uh, I asked both Delarian and Ryan how JROTC prepared them. I was going to ask you how ROTC and college prepared you for your role. Well, like I alluded to earlier, um, you know, the, our instructors in college were active duty instructors. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, we, we did training for two summers at Fort Bragg and Fort... Um, Fort Knox. So we, we had some training actually in the army before we went in as an officer. Okay. Okay. For the uh, for JROTC actually, depending upon your high school, some JROTC units are really good. Some stink, to be honest with you. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you have decent, if you know you're going to enlist, if you have decent instructors. Not like me, but if you had good instructors, um, you at least know right from left. You know what I mean? You know how to salute. You know how to march. You'd be surprised, even with just that knowledge, how much further ahead you are when you first get to your basic training. Because you, when they say you right face, you at least know which way to turn. And, and that mm. sounds kind of cliche, but you've already you're already familiar with some of the terminology. If that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. Uh, both Ryan and Delirian, they said the biggest thing wasn't necessarily like learning how to march per se, but just kind of getting into that mindset of, uh, you know, just getting told what to do and stuff. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's just after a while, you know, when I when I was at, had drill sergeants at Fort Knox, when I first got to GMC, people as a cadet, when I went there, mm-hmm. they get up in my face and stuff. Once you realize, hey, it's nothing personal. They just like to, you know, f with people. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Once you uh, once you understand that, yes sir, no sir, yes drill sergeant, no drill sergeant. Sometimes I bury my face in the pillow and laugh. You don't laugh in front of them because. God, that'd be like chumming for sharks. That's, you know, don't even do that. But, you know, just don't take anything personally. And I'm sure, I, I'll bet uh, Milner and told you the same thing. They don't mean it personally. It's part of the routine. It's part of the training. Just nod your head and yes, sir, no, sir, and keep your mouth shut and drive on. But you're right. Once you get used to being told what to do, it's, it becomes automatic. You don't even think about it. You just do it. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you were in college, uh, what kind of degree did you get? I got a uh, BS, which means exactly what you think it does in history. Um, then I got my master's degree at Fort Leavenworth in uh, military history. So I was going to become a, a history geek. So, you know, I was just drawn to that. Honestly, I probably would have become a teacher. Had I, not gone, I probably would have taught history in high school. Had I not gone to the Army. So Okay. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was fun. So, um, I know with Delarian, because he was actually at the Air Force Academy, 
he was saying that in general, what degree you get doesn't really matter for what you want to do, whether you want to be a, a pilot or anything. But for some things, it does matter. Like, obviously, if you want to be maintenance, then you need to get some kind of degree that's a little bit more technical. Sure. You can't just go get an art degree. Did it matter at all with uh, with you what degree you got? Well, you know, as far as, you know, like artillery is concerned, it doesn't really matter. But to mm-hmm. get to your point, um, certainly, uh, certain technical degrees, maybe you're more more uh, suited for signal corps, for the communications, or for the corps of engineers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a study was done by the Army this is several years ago for flight school, and believe it or not, you know, boneheads like me, the major in, hi- in the history of English, had an easier time in flight school to fly Blackhawks and Apaches than people with the hard science degrees, because, you know, knuckleheads like me, if, if the instructor in flight school, I didn't go to flight school, but if he just said... <laughs> Okay, to fly the helicopter, you know, say your ABCs and hold your left hand up in the air. Okay, fine, whatever. Don't crash. I'll do whatever they tell me to. The hard science guys were like, now why would you do that? That doesn't, now aerodynamically, you know, blah, 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 because they're so smart, and I mean that as a compliment, they would question that. I, hell, I don't know. I'm a history major. What do I know? I'll do whatever you tell me to do. <laughs> so, you know, you, to get back to your point, certain majors do correlate to certain Especially on the officer side. Mm-hmm. Certain uh, engineering majors go to engineers normally. Electrical engineers, signal corps normally. Um, you know, that, does that make sense? That sort of So in the officer side, certain college majors do drive what your job's going to be. Okay. All right. So your MS, did, was that paid for by the Army as well, or did you do that while you were in the Army? Yeah, that, that was paid for by the Army. Oh. And when I was at... at uh, Fort Leavenworth and went to command and general staff college. You could choose to get a master's degree concurrently with that, which okay. I thought, my God, you'd be stupid not to. You're there. Mm-hmm. It's not costing okay. you anything. It's an accredited institution. You know, why not? You know, so the people that didn't do that, and some didn't, and, and God love them, that's their choice, but I mean, holy crap. It's a free okay. master's degree. Why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Yeah. And with that, did they give you, like, once you got the master's, did you go up on the, the ranks structure or anything no, like that? not necessarily. But I knew that my last assignment, I wanted to be a professor of military science somewhere. I didn't know GMC mm-hmm. was going to be it. And in order to do that, you had to have a master's degree. Okay. So I was sort of looking ahead and said, okay, let me get my master's degree. Let me, let me punch that ticket mm-hmm. so that in case I wanted to become... And on a college staff somewhere, as a professor of military science, I would be qualified. Okay. So, yeah, if you get in that position, you should probably do that. That would open some more doors for you sure. when you're picking yeah. your assignments later down the road. Absolutely. And also, even if you exited the military, it would, sure. I guess, yeah. open some more doors and everything. Yeah. Now, would you, is it, did you ever see any assignments to be like a professor at like West Point or anything? No, that, the, the closest I ever came to something like that. I was kind of offered the position of the artillery and exchange instructor at the Canadian Artillery School. Okay. Okay? Because, you know, a lot of times we'll send a, an instructor to some foreign school and they'll send one to ours as exchange ideas and all that kind of stuff. I looked on the map where it was, and it was not next to anything. It was slap in the middle of nowhere. My wife looked at me and said, we're not going there. And I just got to the point in your career where you can – you can't turn down stuff, but you can kind of say, hey, I'd really rather not do that. <laughs> no, they, they can say, hey, buddy, life, life's tough. See you in Canada. <laughs> you know, they could have done that. So um, 
teaching at one of the service academies never I never gotten any close to that. I was almost went to Canada and taught for a little while, but that was but that was it. How has the military in general changed over the years to kind of maybe shine a light in the future for people who are going in now or thinking about going in now? Where the what's the possibility of how much it could change? Has it changed drastically in your time? Well, it's just, it's just gotten so much more technical. We alluded to the the computing artillery instead of putting pins and darts on a map. It, it's it's almost exclusively you know automated now. Um, communications is so much more sophisticated. I mean, satellite comms has always been not always been there, but even hell, when I first went, they had satellite communication. But it's gotten so much more sophisticated now. As far as where it's gonna go, I mean, God, I mean, God only knows. I'm, I'm not trying to avoid your question. You know, it's just uh, you see article once in a while, of, like we discussed in the podcast where we were talking a little bit when it's before it started. You know, mm-hmm. back in the day, you had to shoot six or eight rounds of artillery to have what's, what's called effects on target. Now, one round. It's all satellite guided now. You know, when I first yeah. came in, I was like, are you kidding me? There's no way. Now, that's a little expensive. They don't do that a lot. But as the budget gets increased, they get that sort of thing. It's, it's, um, it's phenomenal. I mean, to give you an, an idea of how it's changed, I guess, the best I could think of is the Marine Corps has phased out tanks. They don't have tanks anymore. They said, hey, they're just too big. We don't need them anymore because the, the threat from other countries and using their tanks, I guess, I guess, not what it used to be. So I mean, we all saw in the movies, everybody's riding around in tanks stuff. Like, can you imagine that? But they don't, have, they don't have tanks anymore. They have other vehicles that they think might be able to do it. But um, it's, yeah. uh, I, I heard that about fell out. But, you know, in the big picture – Strategically, it makes sense, at least for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and and as far and as far as where the military is going, the automation is just—it's just just phenomenal. I mean, holy cow! Um, again, I, I trained with some tankers when I first came in. It was fairly sophisticated then, but nowadays it's just—it's just holy cow! It's unbelievable. Um, but the the rocket launchers that we used to have, and we still have them, but they're so much more accurate now, so much more sophisticated. It's just—it's mm-hmm. phenomenal. I'm I'm kind of beating around the bush to answer your question, but um, certain things when I first came out, I thought, dude, we had a, we had a computer. We had a computer then that literally could be like in a laptop now. And hell, you had to have it in a truck. Yeah. I thought this is the coolest thing ever. And now it's like, what? Are you kidding me? You know. So it's um, it's phenomenal. It really is. Uh, I don't know if they answered your question or not. It's hard. It's hard to, to put a finger on it as, as to where it's going to go. Yeah, I mean that, that was a that was a good answer as far as like the technology driven changes. I was kind of I was trying to ask you more about like uh, I guess policies and stuff like that. How has that changed in your lifetime? Oh uh, well, not much to be honest with you. I mean, you're still expected to to um. Now, when you say you mean like the defense, the big picture defense department policy, or or how people are expected to act. Uh, I I was trying to allude more towards like the big picture, how the military uh, acts and all that stuff like that. But you could also talk about small picture, like what's well, expected yeah, from you. In, in in the big picture, the Desert Storm type thing, or the like an invasion of Iraq type thing. That might never happen. Something like that might never happen again. Mm-hmm. Because, and, I, and again, I'm 
just from my small little slice of the pie here in the world, um, big set piece battles like that, you know, the World War II tank battles or Desert Storm or, or the the 03 invasion of Iraq, mm -hmm. most of our adversaries know that in a battle like that, they're not going to win. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Even they may, well, you know, Iraq had a lot more tanks and artillery than we did, a lot more. Especially Desert Storm, and they just got mowed over. I mean, it was, you know, holy cow. You know, so the the traditional, we need to be prepared for them and train for them, but the traditional battles that, that we see in the movies and, you know, hopefully that'll never happen again. A lot of it's electronic warfare now. Um, you know, cyber warfare, to, to get to that, you can enlist now as a, one of your MOSs is cyber warfare. They never, that's just been the last three or four years. So basically, once you go through basic training, you're, you know, trying your computer, you know, a computer hacker, anti-computer hacker. I'm probably not, term, the terminology is probably not good, but it's, it's cyber warfare. I mean, 20 years ago, who would have thought something like that would be a, a separate job? Yeah. I mean, on the officer side, the same way. There's a branch now for electronic warfare or cyber warfare. You know, there's artillery, infantry, military police, blah, blah, blah. And just in the last couple of years, there's a separate branch for officers and for enlisted. Hmm. Now, of course, you know, the Air Force and the, and the Navy, but, you know, I'm going to on that one. But um, it's, you know, how, how the, in the big picture, how it's going to be. Again, this is just my humble opinion. Um, the biological, I'm not saying the COVID-19 with China and the biological attack. <laughs> I don't want to, that's just, those conspiracy theories, you know, whatever. I don't want to go there because right? some people, you see them on Facebook, well, you know, blah, 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 just shut up. So, but yeah. I'm saying, you know, <laughs> but something like that, you know, you got to be prepared for that. The electronic, I hate to keep saying, come back to electronic warfare, but cyber, cyber security and electronic warfare and satellite, that's, that's the battlefield of the future, in my humble opinion. We need to train for the old old school artillery and, and tanks and stuff, but with few exceptions, that might not ever happen again. And that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, I don't know if I answer your question or not. As far as, as far as policy on the big picture is concerned, but it's been like this, uh, Cody, throughout our history. You know, you have to, um, as far as using tanks and shooting artillery and, and missiles and aircraft, the bad guys have to think that you might actually do it. Mm -hmm. And you have to hope you never have to. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, just, it's just when you think about it, the weapons have gotten so much more sophisticated nowadays, but even 15 years ago, 10 years ago. So, as far as, you know, shooting stuff at somebody that actually explodes, the bad guys, they have to want this guy, this guy, I mean the president or whoever, right? Whoever is in charge. This guy just might do it. Yeah. And so maybe they'll they'll think twice when they use something stupid. Does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. It, it sounds like, and I agree with this, you're saying that technology has come for, uh, so far along that it's really driven warfare into a different uh, type of environment to where oh, sure. now it's not a nation versus a nation because every nation knows what every other nation's capable of. Right. Uh, it's, it's more like maybe a group within a nation that doesn't even necessarily represent the nation, so you can't attack directly. Right. Well, Cody, think about it. You know, the war on terror will never end. Mm -hmm. You know, the Taliban or whoever is never going to, you know, again, I keep going back to my history lessons. You know, when 
Japan signed the surrender document on Battleship Missouri to end World War II, you know, the terrorists are never going to sign, okay, we'll, we'll stop. <laughs> yeah. You know, 9 11 cha changed us forever. You know, the war on terror is never going to end. We have to be right all the time. They only got to be right once. Yeah. And when you think about it, so that, in, in the big picture, we always going to be on guard because, you know, our enemy is now more in the shadows than it was Nazi Germany, Japan, Iraq during the storm, that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, the enemy is not so obvious anymore. And exactly, yeah. You basically answered my next question. I was going to ask you what were the biggest challenges that you see in your industry, which is the military, and I think you hit on that. It's basically how warfare is changing. It's more cyber, electronic, AI, whatnot. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, stuff that I couldn't even couldn't even begin to explain. So, like Again, I got punched out in 05. You know, I, I kind of keep track of stuff through news articles and this sort of thing, but but um, again, just just look where it's going nowadays. You know, um, the technology is so far outpaced. To give you a give you a quick little history comparison, okay? And this, I'm a Civil War geek, so this might bore you, but um, you know, in the Revolutionary War, you know, we all stand shoulder to shoulder and fire muskets because they were so inaccurate. Mm -hmm. The old smoothbore musket. Of course, Mel Gibson never missed in the Patriot, but don't get me started on that one. But um, <laughs> by the time the Civil War started. They had the rifled muskets, which mm -hmm. by today's standards was crap. By those standards, that was that was technology. Mm -hmm. They were a lot more accurate, but we did things the old way. Standing shoulder, if you saw Gettysburg, some of the old movies, standing shoulder to shoulder, firing somebody, which look back and why in the... God, that was stupid. But what I'm saying is the technology, even back in the 1860s, outpaced the tactics. Mm -hmm. So the technology of today has made some of our tactics not obsolete, but we had to modify them significantly because of the mm. technological changes. Yeah, and I think if you look through history, you'll see that. Usually the tactics follow the technology. Exactly. After, yeah, some, after you realize on a battlefield you just got massacred because that tactic's totally ineffective now. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've gotten better at that, at modifying tactics to, to meet technology, but... We drug our feet on that one, but again, it's uh, technology driving what, what we do more. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what you said. You mentioned that the Marine Corps just dropped the tank, and it's not necessarily because the tank's an ineffective weapon. It's just um, it's not the correct tactic for what they're doing right now in warfare, for what, which for, is... For their pur exactly, for their purpose. It doesn't suit, yeah. doesn't suit what they need to be able to do. Right. Yeah, and then I've also I've also heard, and this will probably hurt you, it hurt me to hear it, but <laughs> people were saying that um, artillery will you know phase out because now you can basically do what you want with artillery with uh, airstrikes and stuff, and it's like oh, well that's what I'm working yeah, on. Yeah, it might. <laughs> it'll it'll break my heart, but you know, but again, you know the old one round one hit. Mm -hmm. That's that was that was unheard of even ten years ago. Yeah, they were they were trying to experiment with it but people people like me are like yeah okay whatever good luck with that but but they're doing it now <laughs> mm -hmm. you know so the old artillery thing we have you know even desert storm you look on youtube you see them where there are multiple launch rockets so you go to youtube and search mlrs firing it's just like just phenomenal what they're doing and and now is the accuracy is so much better which is not a bad thing mm. and you, instead of having to shoot you know, three volleys of 
of six rounds apiece or 18 rounds, just you can shoot maybe three rounds and have the same effects or more accurate on the target than you had mm -hmm. to. So, you know, to get back to what you just said, 15, 20 years from now, you know, I hate to say it's going to go away, but it's, it'll be modified significantly, probably. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Makes sense. Getting ready to wrap this thing up, I'm going to start asking you um, basically what what kind of advice would you offer to people that want to be uh, in a make a whole career out of the military like you, not just like uh, one enlistment or, you know, maybe they're starting out with one enlistment, but they're considering a career in the military. Well, it's, it's hard to say, tell somebody, you should make a career in the military for, for reasons A, B, and C, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I think you should do your initial enlistment or your your initial tour as an officer. Again, like, like I said, Cody, with any other job that you have, civilian or military, once you do that first enlistment, right, three years, four years, whatever it is, or your first tour as an officer, again, you got to ask yourself, did, did the good days outnumber the bad days? Mm -hmm. And if they did, you know, maybe you should make it a career. As far as, you know, I enjoyed the military because, again, it was – you know, you were, you were never doing the same thing very long. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're always doing something different. And again, at the risk of being too philosophical here, you always, it was, I was always part of something bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. There's always that, that mission that you knew you were a part of. There were some days and you thought, my God, what the hell am I doing? But, but you always knew in the back of your mind you were serving a higher purpose. So, you know, if, if, if the good days outnumber the bad days, you know, hang around. With it, with any job, and plus, like you see in the military, you're doing something. You're part of something bigger than yourself. I hate to keep saying that, but I hear that a lot from people that I've served with. That that's one of the reasons why they stayed in. If that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. But if they were determined to be in the military, I guess uh, what would be most advantageous for them to rank up and everything and get high up in in the military? Just don't. Always keep trying to better yourself as far as schooling is concerned. If you get a chance to go to a certain school, like I'm going to get my master's degree, if you get a chance to go to airborne school or air assault school, um, mm -hmm. do all the schooling that you can, okay? In other words, don't don't try to stop improving yourself. If you're going to make the, a career out of the military, okay, don't get stale. Don't say, okay, where I am now is fine. Not where I am, meaning the location that I'm at, because you're always going to move, right? But meaning, mm -hmm. where I am, meaning, okay, well, I've, I've ed educated myself enough, that's fine, or I've, I don't need to go to any more schools, I'm, I'm good to go. You know, don't get complacent. If you're going to make a career out of it, you have to always keep trying to improve yourself, whether okay. that's through schooling or through a more difficult assignment, does that make sense? Um, you know, the day, and again, I get a little philosophical, but it goes into think about, about making a career out of anything. The day you stop trying to get better is the day you start getting worse at whatever it is you're trying to do. So the folks that want to make a career out of it, male, female, whatever, always try to, what's that next assignment? Meaning, what can I do to make myself better? What school can I go to? Um, what assignment can I get that enhances my chances of getting promoted or whatever? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I know you've mentioned that, you know, you want more good days than bad days, but 
what are some of the, the, the good things that you brought, that you got out of the military, you feel like, the positive things? And then what are some of the things that did kind of drive you away? Obviously, you didn't leave, but what are some of the things that you didn't like about it? Well, stuff you don't like. You don't like being away from your family a lot, obviously. Even mm-hmm. if you're single, you know, even if you're gone a lot when you're single, that, that gets old, too. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the people that you work with, some of your commanders, and some of your, like your enlisted, your first sergeant, and platoon sergeant, sometimes they're just, they're just complete buttheads, and, and you scratch your head going, my God, how did that guy get to, or gal, you know, get to that rank? So when you have a, a, a poor leader, that makes the job bad, and that makes yeah. it, that makes you think, maybe I should get out, but you know something? If, if you work with somebody like that, either you or he are leaving within a year, usually. I mean, you think about it, right? As assignments mm-hmm. rotate. Um, to get to your question, as far as saying it might, it might drive me away, or, or they could have, poor leadership. Whether it's on okay. the enlisted officer side. If you got a poor leader, again, that happens once in a while, but if it happens consistently, then you either got a lot of bad luck, or maybe, or maybe you should get out. But you know, uh, that doesn't happen very often. Sometimes you have certain jobs that aren't a whole lot of fun, right? When I was, you know, flying the desk with the international officers, yeah, I got to know some of them. It was kind of cool, but it's like, my God, this is boring. But I knew in the back of my head, hey, in a few months, I'll be doing something else. You know what I mean? Don't, as far as making a decision to make a career, don't be prone to knee-jerk reactions, okay? So when you get to a particular job, and this job sucks, God Almighty, I'm getting out. And I almost got out once. When I first got to Fort Knox, I was at a, some desk. I'm not going to get into details and bore you, but I hated that particular job. I almost got out, but that would have been very short-sighted on my part. Mm-hmm. Right? A few months later, I became battery commander. Life was good, and and um, I was I was calling civilian recruiters about about jobs. I was, you know, right before Kevin was born, um, I was close to getting out. I'm glad I stayed in, obviously. So, but that would have been a knee-jerk reaction based on our short-term situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. To talk to people about making a career out of it after that first assignment, I always, I always told myself I would stay in for at least two two tours, right? The initial tour, in case that sucked, which mine did, I was very fortunate. Then one more to look at life from both sides of the fence, right? We got a little more rank. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, if, if some people hate it, they hate it from the day, from day one. You see them on social media. Oh, what was I thinking? This sucks. And they get out after their first tour, and that's fine. Nothing. You do your first three years, you get out. You got your GI Bill money, right? Hmm. Go to college or do whatever you're going to do. Nothing wrong with that. But, um, uh, again, a higher purpose maybe you want to stay in. Plus, you feel, hey, you know, you're always going to do something different. Yeah. You ever, you ever hear some people complain about some civilian jobs? They're in that job. I'm not being critical. That's fine. If, they, if you love what you're doing, great. Mm. But man, doing the same thing 25, 30 years. God, I love people that do that. Don't misunderstand me. Not being judgmental. Mm-hmm. But I got an attention span shorter than my students. That would just, God, I got to do something different. You know what I mean? Because in the yeah. military, oh, you're always moving. You're always doing something different. Yeah. Some people are more suited to it. And then you have jobs that need those types of people. So. And God love him, nothing wrong with that, but that's just not, doesn't suit me, if that makes any sense. That pretty much wraps up all my questions, but if you want to, you can take some time to pause, I'll edit out a long pause. 
Uh, if you want to, you can uh, revel us with your most interesting or fun story from being in the military. Well, holy cow, let me think. I already told you a story of almost killed McCleskey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only time I thought, I really thought I was in trouble. Okay, when I was first got to Germany, again, the Berlin Wall was still up, so there were still us and the Soviets, right? Mm-hmm. And the first night that I had, well, I, was, I was a duty officer. And the, the sergeant was on duty with me, was checking the motor pool. He was out doing something. So the, the hot loop rang. Ooh, the hot loop. It's like James Bond. So I picked it up. We had our code word. And they said, uh, flash traffic follows. So I was copying down all the letters. The, the 56, I remember this like it was yesterday. 56 letters and numbers in groups of twos and three. Okay? So I copied them all down. Had to open the safe to look in the, in the code book to what this message meant. And the message was it was exercise traffic, and for some reason the exercise meaning is a drill. Okay, mm-hmm. the exercise part glossed over my brain. The first word was, the first sentence. Once I decoded it, was hostilities have commenced with the Warsaw Pact nations, meaning World War Three is just that means the Russians have come across the border. <laughs> I was that close to alerting the entire battalion. I almost called the battalion commander, going, hey, sir, we're at war. This is it. We need to alert the battalion, <laughs> which would have been just god-awful embarrassing. I mean, I mean, so before, I almost had the phone in my hand, and the sergeant came back. He goes, hey, sir, what's going on? And I kind of played it off. Like, I got this message. What do you think? Yeah, it's exercise traffic. You can file that thing. I'm like, oh, I knew that. Okay. <laughs> And, I, you know, I, I saw I almost started World War Three. so there's that. No, I'm kidding. I wasn't, I'm being melodramatic, but I thought to myself, my God, my first time on duty, the Russians invaded. Holy crap. They couldn't wait until tomorrow. <laughs> that scared the bejeebers out of me. So anyway, but that was, uh, besides almost killing McCleskey, that was the one time when I was like, my sphincter muscle tightened up something terrible. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for doing the interview with me. I think uh, I think it'll be enlightening for a lot of people who are thinking about the career in the military. They've heard from the short-term people who have been in, but this gives them a better idea if they are considering doing it for the long haul. So, Okay. You'll see you again. Take care. All right. Thanks. Hey there, listeners. I'd like to thank you again for listening to the episode. And I'd also like to take this time to remind you that if you like these podcasts and if you want to uh, have these blocks of 10 episodes produced faster the best way you can help is to spread this podcast to your friends family whoever you know because the the part that takes the most time is really finding people for the interview and scheduling the interviews so the more people i have emailing me saying they're interested in doing an interview or they know somebody that'd be interested the faster i can put out these videos so Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.